0: Let's pray together. Our Father, we humble ourselves before you and pause to ask for your help now, so that what we're doing would have your grace upon it. We need grace so that the words that come out of my mouth are faithful and true and hug tightly to your word. We have not come to hear from man, but have come to hear from God. And with your Spirit's help, that will be exactly what happens now. We also ask for our hearts that you would help us to receive what you're about to say and that you would lower our arms of defensiveness and that we would let it hit our hearts and that you might give to us today even a new vision of what it looks like to follow you and be like Christ in this world. Our prayer is that we would live in such a way that we would be the salt of the earth and the light of the world for your glory and the good of all around us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the History Channel had a miniseries called The Hatfields and the McCoys. And the miniseries was based on the true life story of this family feud between these two families, the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky and there was this rivalry and this hatred between these two families that went on for generations. Generations of fighting that escalated to the point of murder and hatred and killings of men, women and children to the point that it escalated even to nearly bringing Kentucky and West Virginia to war. Two states nearly were on the brink of war because of the feuding between these two families. And with each passing year it seemed to only escalate. It seemed like there was only more gasoline poured on the fire of their hatred for one another. So for example in 1880 a McCoy was killed. Two years later some McCoy brothers got into a fight and stabbed and killed a Hatfield. The Hatfields responded to that by capturing three McCoy brothers, tying them to a tree and firing 50 shots at the three of them gunning them down execution style. The McCoys responded to that by using their political connections to get a whole bunch of the Hatfields arrested. The Hatfields responded to that by surrounding the patriarch of the McCoy family's home on New Year's Day and just gunning down the home. The patriarch ran out the back, but in that, two of the kids were killed and the wife was beaten and left to die. It went that way, back and forth, over and over and over again, just escalating till, like I said, it nearly brought two states to war over what was going on between these two families. Now, here's what's perhaps most interesting. You know how the whole thing got started? A pig. A McCoy accused a Hatfield of stealing one of his hogs. And that spiraled out of control so that some years later, one of them killed the other. And then the accusations and the misunderstandings took place, and it blew up and out of control over a hog. That's how the whole thing began, to the point that nearly two states had another civil war just a few years after the civil war in America had ended. Now... When you hear something like that, isn't it something that that kind of revenge and retaliation could escalate to the point of, he killed one, so we killed three, and then they killed some more, and on and on it went. It was precisely for that very kind of a thing that the Old Testament had a law called lex talionis. It was the law of retaliation. Now, that phrase is unfamiliar to us, but this phrase is very familiar to you. The law basically stated an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, why did you have this law? The heart behind that law, the lex taliones, the law of retaliation, the intent of that law, the purpose of that law, the wisdom of God in that law was this, that it was given to ensure that justice would take place. So, for example, you're a judge in a court in Israel. You want to know how do I rule fairly in a way that justice can actually be done? Well, lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So, if someone comes into my courtroom and they've stolen someone's hog, I don't order them killed because an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The principle that I'm supposed to understand is if a hog has been stolen, then a hog needs to be paid for. That's the restitution that's required. Right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In fact, that wisdom spills down even to our day so that our law courts operate by something very similar. We often hear the phrase that the punishment must, what? Fit the crime. The punishment must fit the crime. That's the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is that we ought not to have judges and juries and judiciary that that go beyond justice. For example, recently I heard of this uproar on CNN over this woman in Florida who had taken a gun and fired a warning shot to an abusive husband. A man was coming, she felt her life was threatened, and so she took a gun and she fired a shot. Now, no one was hurt, no one was harmed, but the judge ruled that she would be sentenced to 20 years in prison for that shot. Right? Now, without weighing into the merits of the case, right or wrong, we don't want firearms being shot into the air. We don't want innocent folks injured. But the uproar, you can sort of feel instinctively what's behind that, which is, does one equal one? Is that, is that lex talionis? Is that eye for eye and tooth for tooth that a, a gunshot equals 20 years in prison? And so the uproar begins. We get why this is such a wise... Law. We get the heart behind this law. And so God's desire in giving this law was to promote justice in the world. But it was not only just to promote justice, this law was also given so that you could restrain violence. So that you could restrain the instinct within us that's to get even. The instinct within us to retaliate and to revenge. And so what this law was to do was to restrain violence, restrain revenge, restrain retaliation. And we needed this law because otherwise what would happen? We'd operate in the world of the Hatfield and the McCoys. right? If if we didn't have this, we'd operate in the, you knocked out one of my teeth, I'm going to knock out six of yours. You cost me a finger, I'm going to cost you an arm. You killed one of us, we're going to kill three of you. That's the way that we would instinctively operate, right? We, we have a saying that says, don't get mad, get even, right? I'm not going to let something go, and so I'm going to get even. And so this thing would escalate over and over and over again. And so God gave this law, the lex talianis, the law of retaliation to say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, so that things don't spiral out of control. So that you know, when an eye is taken, and it never actually came to that, an eye is required, and then the issue was done. You see that? You see, in the wisdom of God, you could put that thing to bed. It was done. There would be no more, I'm going to go one over, and another over, and another over. The wisdom of God was to restrain violence, and to restrain retaliation, and reduce and eliminate vengeance from his people. But now, here's what religious people did. Here's what religious people, like we've been looking at all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, folks like the Pharisees, who were experts at keeping the letter of the law and completely ignoring the spirit of it. Here's what they did with this law. Rather than seeing God's heart, that this was in place to reduce and eliminate vengeance and retaliation, they used it to become a mandate for retaliation and become license for personal vendettas and revenge. Here's what I'm saying. Rather than the law being restrictive, it became prescriptive. Does that make sense? Rather than the law being restrictive in binding my instinct for vengeance and to get even, it became prescriptive. It became what they said you must do, what you were entitled to do. And so they would say, you hurt me? Oh, you know I'm going to hurt you because eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You see that? You came after me? Oh, you know you're going to get what's coming to you because the law says eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So that the questions the Pharisees started struggling with is not the intent of the law or the wisdom of the law or the heart of the law. The question they started struggling with is how far can I go in my retaliation before it actually breaks the law? You punch me in the face. How much exactly can I punch you in the face before it exceeds eye for eye and tooth for tooth? The the entire nature of the law was flipped on its head so that rather than restricting vengeance and retaliation, the Pharisees used the law to promote it. Rather than eliminating retaliation and vengeance and hatred towards one another, the Pharisees used the law to sanction it, to endorse it, to put God's stamp of approval on it. Your personal vendettas are no problem because God said you can go an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Samaro, do you see, as we've been seeing each week, week after week, how the Pharisees were geniuses, these religious leaders, often with hearts just like yours and mine, were geniuses at taking the law of God, twisting it and doing just the right gymnastics so that it became a pathway to more sin rather than a path to holiness. And so Jesus steps in, God in the flesh. He enters the fray of all this confusion and the misinterpretation by the Pharisees of this law and listen to what Jesus says. It's what Peggy Sue led us reading in. It's what you just uttered a few moments ago, but hear it again with fresh ears. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to save this command of God from the Pharisees' misinterpretation of it. And he wants to show you what God's heart really was in giving you the law of lex talionis, what God's desire, what, what his genuine heart of wanting to restrain violence and eliminate vengeance was. And so here's what he does. Jesus, as he has been doing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talks to his disciples, right? He Remember, he knows that there's the crowds listening around, But he's coming at his disciples, right? Matthew 5, verse 1 started with seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So he knows the crowds are listening, but he's got a very pointed word for his disciples. And so here's what he does, just like he's been doing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He looks at them, and he says, you're my disciples, right? And they're nodding their heads, going, yep, we're your disciples, You want to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And they're nodding their heads and going, yes, we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm the king of this kingdom. That's what I've come to establish in the world. You want in, right? And they're going, yes, we want in. You're my citizens then, right? And they're nodding their head and they're going, yep, that's right. Okay. Then here's how I want you to respond to folks who hurt you. Here's how I want you to respond to the evil ones in your life. Or like my, my friend Doug Logan from Camden. He, here's how I want you to respond to the folks who do you dirty. When they do you dirty, here's what I want you to do. Do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, I want to take a quick second just to clear away all the misunderstanding that can grow around what Jesus just said. For just a second, I want to just clear away so that we understand what he is and is not saying. He just told us, do not resist the one who is evil. So is he saying there that we should never resist evil? Is Jesus intending to say, for example, we should never have policemen anymore, as some have interpreted this verse, because we should never resist the evil in our streets. We should never have soldiers anymore, because we should never resist the evil in the world. Is Jesus saying that when someone you see is in harm, that you shouldn't do everything you can possibly do to rescue them and to save them and to spare them because we should stand by and do nothing so that we don't resist the one who is evil? Is Jesus saying here that when someone breaks into your home, Dad, you're going to stand idly by rather than doing everything you can, even dying in order to protect your wife and your children? Is any of that what Jesus has in mind here? And we want to say no. None of that squares well with what the rest of the scriptures teach us about how we're to respond with evil. We are to fight against evil. We're to eliminate evil. When we see injustice in the world, we should fight it. When there's human trafficking going on in the red light districts of Bombay, we should not sit back and not resist the evil one because that's not what Jesus has in view here. We should do everything we can to dismantle all the systems of injustice in the world. Jesus has not in view here the police or self-defense or or protecting loved ones here. What the Pharisees did was they took lex talionis out of the law courts and applied it to personal relationships and used it as license for personal vendettas. And so Jesus is speaking there. Jesus is speaking to the place that the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law and saying, if you use this for your personal relationships as a license for your vengeance, as a license to get even, as a license for your vendettas, you're hearing the wrong law wrong. And so Jesus says, for the folks who hurt you in your life, in your relationships, for the folks who do you wrong, for the ones who are evil in your life, I want to go after that thing in your heart that says, don't get mad, get even. I want you to hear me. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, what does that look like? Well, Jesus, thankfully, gives us some examples. He gives us some pictures to illustrate exactly what that looks like. These aren't laws, these aren't commands, they're illustrations to try and help you to understand and to think creatively about what it looks like to respond to those who do wrong to you. So here's the first thing he says. He says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Hear that again. So here's a picture, here's an illustration. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let me do a a two-second experiment for a second. If you're a righty, would you raise your hand in the room? Okay, maybe it'll be clearer to see. If you're a lefty, if you're one of our lefties, would you raise your hand? All right, so you can see that. We've got like five lefties in the room. The experts say that there's somewhere about 95% of the world is right-handed, and the rest are lefties, Okay. So now Jesus is speaking to a room full of righties, to a culture where righties would have been valued and prized, and he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, now think of that, I'm right-handed. If I'm facing you, this is your right cheek. Right? If I go like this, I'm slapping you on the left cheek. So how do I have to hit you to hit you on your right cheek? I have to go like this. I have to go like that. Now, we've got a very ugly term in our culture for that kind of a slap, right? And even the term connotes this is not just an ordinary slap. To be slapped like that is the most degrading, humiliating thing you could do. And you talk about first century Jewish culture. What on earth would it be for a man to be backslapped across the face? I mean, you can talk to any man in this room, He'll tell you, if I got into a fight and I got knocked out, I could take that. If someone slapped me in the face, I would be plotting for the rest of my life how to kill him, right? There is nothing that degrades and humiliates you more than something like that. I mean, you, you would want to choke the person out, right? There, there's nothing like a slap, and not just a slap, a backhand to your face. And Jesus is saying, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. At this point, I'm I'm telling you, it's almost like you could suffer through some of the other stuff Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. He he said stuff about lust and about money. It's almost like I could let him dictate what goes on in our wallets and our bedrooms before this. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying, you got to give up your right to, to not have that happen to you. I mean, we, we we thrive on our rights. No one has the right to do that to us. And Jesus says, when that happens to you, turn the other cheek. Now, why? Why does Jesus say that? Is it because Jesus intends for Christians to be the doormats of the world, to just be trampled over and stepped on? Is it because Jesus intends for you to be a pushover or a coward? You're never going to stand up for yourself. You're just going to be a coward all your life. No, hear me. It takes an enormous amount of strength and courage to not tuck your tail and, and run, to not be cowardice and hide, but to go back to the one with your cheeks still red and your eyes blurry with tears and your face ringing with pain and say, go ahead and slap me again. And one commentator adds, except this time you got to do it as an equal. You, you can't do that anymore. You've got you to slap me here as an equal. You see, Jesus envisioned something bigger. Not doormats, not pushovers, but citizens who live by a different rule and ethic because... Our goal is not to decimate the one who took our eye and tooth, but to win them. See, what might Jesus have in view? Let me give you an example. I heard a preacher named Revi Zacharias tell the story of being in Malaysia. And he was speaking at a university, and he was at a Malaysian university, the oldest Islamic institute in the country. And at that place, there was one geology professor who was a Christian. And there was this famous Muslim debater who had come to town. He has since passed, but he was debating anyone who would take him on about religion and world faith. This man named Dida. He had come to this university, and he was lecturing, and he was just mocking Christianity, insulting every Christian. This geology professor stood up, and he said, why are you mocking Christianity? And this man said, because it's a farce. It's fake. No one can live the Sermon on the Mount. And so this geology professor said, what do you mean? And so he said, come up here. Audience full, packed room, packed house. This geology professor comes to the front on stage and Dita slaps him across the face. Slaps him across the face in front of the whole auditorium. And he says, now your book says that you're supposed to turn the other cheek. And this professor said that his face was still ringing from that slap and he turned the other cheek. Now, the man didn't know what to do with that, and so he said, okay, I won't slap you. Your book also says, if someone wants to take your shirt, you should give them your cloak as well. So here's what I want you to do in front of this whole room, take your trousers off, okay? So this man now has no idea what he's supposed to do. He looks at a room full of his students, and this is what he says. He turns to his students, and he says, I beg your forgiveness for what I'm about to do. He unzips his pants and lets his pants fall. And now he's standing there in his underwear and the entire room is watching. This debater just begins to laugh and insult him and literally this man has to pick his pants up and go off stage. He said the next day, there was a line of Muslim students outside his door, each one who had come to beg for forgiveness for what the man had done. A line of Muslim students begging him to please forgive them for what the other man had done. Jesus intends for you and I to act in such a way that our response might have the ability to win the hardest heart. You going blow for blow and punch for punch and insult for insult isn't going to impress anyone in the world because it's the way the world operates. But you, you responding to that, in a way that suffers for the sake, in love for the sake of the one who just slapped you, has the ability to win the most hardest heart, Jesus says. So if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus says, turn to him the other also. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 says, and hear these words carefully. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. We're not just doormats. We're mindful of God in the moment and will suffer unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's what you've been called to. That's what it will look like for you to be the salt of a decaying earth and the light of a dark world. That's how you shine like a city that's on a hill so that no one can ignore your light and give glory to your Father who is in heaven for your good deeds. Listen to me. You won't have to wait long to apply this word word or this verse. You won't have to wait long. In fact, I'd imagine before the day is done, you'll have an opportunity to turn the other cheek. By the time you go home, some of you will. Some of you go home to a contentious roommate Some of you go back to a family squabble that you're in the middle of, in the thick of. Some of you go back to your own marriages and, and you know the conflicts that abound. And this verse is saying, the next time you're in the middle of that fight, God help us, the next time you're in the middle of that quarrel and someone says something to you, he says that thing to you that you know was said just to hurt you. Just enough to get under your skin to basically be that to your face. I mean, he might as well have slapped you across the face. She says that thing that you know is just there to rile you up. Jesus is saying, don't return blow for blow. Don't insult for insult. Turn the other cheek. And so you are already beginning to think, what would it look like for me to turn the other cheek in that conflict? What would it look like for me, like Jesus, my Savior, to be reviled and not revile in return? What would it look like for me to take the insult and the slap? To us who can't let one argument go without correcting, defending, and winning. I must win this argument no matter what the cost. And Jesus is saying, what would it look like to receive the blow? And if we want to weasel out of this and say, no, 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 this is how we should act with our enemies, this isn't about marriage or home, then listen to me, we're no better than the Pharisees. Remember, they, they kept the letter of the law down to the little eye and ignored the spirit of it. And I'd imagine the spirit of the law says, if this is how you're to act with evil ones outside the kingdom, surely it must apply to your own spouse or sibling or parent within your home. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Or Jesus says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So here he's giving you a picture, an illustration of an adversary that wants to literally sue your pants off. That's what he wants to do. He wants to sue you and take the shirt off your back. And Jesus says, when he does that, let him have your jacket as well. When he takes you to court and he wants to sue the shirt off your back, let him have your jacket as well. What what is Jesus saying? Look, even in the Old Testament, there was a law about your cloak. I mean, there's all kinds of peculiar laws. A cloak was a man's security. It was was not only what he wore outside, it was sort of his sheet at night. It was what he covered himself in bed. So each night, a man couldn't be without his cloak. You were supposed to return it to him. And Jesus is saying, if someone wants to take even that, what you have a right to, protected by the law... You have a right to this thing. Jesus says, let him have that as well. In fact, listen, the New Testament will take this and run with it so far so that Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing to a church at Corinth, a young church plant. And he's got a bunch of people who are taking one another to court and suing one another. And he literally says, why would you not rather suffer wrong? In fact, he's got a word that says, why not rather be defrauded? Do you hear that? Why not rather be defrauded than actually take your brother in Christ to court? And we want to say, but we've got rights. And Jesus is saying to us, I am after something bigger than your rights. I am after the world seeing a picture of what I look like. And I intend for that picture to be on display through your life. I'm after the world seeing what life in the kingdom looks like, what it means to be a citizen Of this kingdom. And that's through your life. Or Jesus will give one more picture. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I loved this one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, we can't easily relate to that. What do you mean? How how does anyone force you to go a mile? Well, that's lost on us, sort of right over our heads. Jesus' first hearers would have known exactly what he was saying. See, Jesus' folks, who, the, the guys who were on that mountainside, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they were Jews living in Israel under Roman occupation. So the Romans were oppressing them. And in that day, there was a law that said a Roman soldier could commandeer you to carry his burden for a thousand paces, a, a mile. So the, you know how even today we've got cops who if they need your car, they can commandeer your car. Well, in that day, they could commandeer you And you became the vehicle on which they carried their stuff for a thousand paces. So a Roman soldier could just grab you out of the crowd. You had to drop whatever you were doing, wherever you were going, and you had to carry his stuff for a thousand paces. In fact, you see an example of this. If you remember the scene where Jesus is being crucified, he can't carry what? The Roman cross. And so they grab a man out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene, and they say, walk. And so this man has to carry the cross and walk. Well, the Romans could do that. The law of the emperor in the land was that a Roman could commandeer you and now you had to carry his tools, his luggage for a thousand paces. Now imagine what that would have been like. You're the people of God. This is the promised land that God had promised you. The Gentile pagan Romans are in this land and now the law of their pagan emperor says you've got to carry the very tools of your oppression for a thousand paces. I mean... You talk about a vivid picture of being under the weight of the Romans. That was a literal picture of what their life was like. We are under Roman rule. We're carrying their weight. We're bearing their oppression. This is not our load to carry, and yet we're carrying it. So, if you had to do that, how would you do it? And you would be cursing under your breath every step of the way. These cursed Romans... You would pray every Old Testament, bash their heads against rock prayers for these Romans every step of the way. And what else would you be doing? You'd be counting every step. One, two, 997, 998, 999, 1,000. And you would drop that thing and you'd be done. And Jesus comes and says, here's what I want you to do. When you hit a 1,000, Walk another mile. Now, you know what that would be like to be told. I mean, you're, imagine you're an Israelite under Roman occupation and you're supposed to carry their weaponry or their luggage or their burden for another. You, you would say, what are you talking about, Jesus? You would say, in fact, that's, they can't force us to do that. The law doesn't allow that. The emperor's rule doesn't. And Jesus would say, exactly. So do it voluntarily. Why? Can you imagine the look on a Roman soldier's face when you get to a thousand and you keep walking? Can you imagine when he tells you, no, 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 that the, the law of the emperor doesn't require that, and you go, I know. I mean, is there anything that could convey to that man, I don't live by Roman law? Is there anything that could more powerfully convey, the strongest rule of Rome doesn't hold me? I live by a higher ethic, a stronger law. Is there anything that could say to a Roman, I have allegiance not to Caesar, but to Christ. I don't live by these laws shaped in this world. I'm a citizen of a different kingdom with a different king. And so I will gladly walk another mile. Doormats, no. Jesus is saying, I want you to be citizens of my kingdom And show the world what it looks like to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I'll go on to say the same thing applies to money. If you're to be open-hearted, then don't be tight-fisted with your money either. So give to the one who begs from you and do not resist the one who would borrow from you. Look, here's the point. With these illustrations, here's what Jesus is saying. I want to get you started on thinking about what it will look like for you to respond to evil. How will you respond to those who do wrong? And 7 Mile Road, let us not keep the letter of the law and miss the spirit of it. So let us not even here, as New Testament Christians, take Jesus' words, keep the letter of it, and miss the spirit of it, right? Otherwise, here's what you do. You go, all right, one slap, two slap. The third slap's mine, right? You get a two-slap head start. You get a two-insult head start, but then you better know I'm coming, Uh, Two miles, fine. Not one mile, two miles, but not an inch more after that. You know what we do then? We become the new Pharisees who keep the letter of the law and not the spirit of it. What Jesus is trying to say is, I want you to start thinking about how you're going to respond to evil. So, you know when that person insults you, that person that just knows just how to get under your skin and say exactly what can jab your heart? You know what most of us do? We drive home or we get home and we have this imaginary conversation in our head about what you're going to say to them next time. Oh, I hope she says because then I know the exact line that I'm going to use. Jesus is saying, I want you to use that kind of mental energy and creativity to think about how am I not going to be overcome by evil but how am I going to overcome evil with good? How am I going to respond with good? to those who are evil to me. Here's the last thing I want to say, Savmaru. If you're here and you're hearing this, part of you, if you're honest, wants to do this with all your heart, and part of you is going, who can do any of this? Who can do any of this? Hear me. The preacher can. I don't mean me by that. The preacher of the Sermon on the Mount can. You see, friends... Jesus is not asking you in this passage to do one thing that he hasn't already done first. I want to go, who can possibly suffer being slapped and insulted on the face and turn the other cheek? And then I read Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Or Matthew 26. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he, had, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I want to ask, Who on earth would let someone take not only his tunic, but the shirt off his back? And then I read Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. When I want to ask, who on earth would carry someone else's burden and walk steps they didn't deserve to walk? And then I read John 20, John 19. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Someone wrote, Here's what I'm saying. If you push back and say, But Ajay, you have no idea what this person does to me, or how they hurt to me, I would say to you, I have no idea. But every time Jesus would say, I do. I have every idea. I know exactly what it's like to be insulted. He was reviled first Peter said and he did not revile in return I have every idea of what it's like to have them take the very shirt off your back I have every idea of what it's like to carry a burden that was not mine to carry and walk a thousand paces In fact Jesus would turn this on you and say I have every idea because that's what you did to me Your sin slapped me across the face Your sin hung me naked on a cross. Your sin was put as a Roman cross on my back, and I walked up a hill for you. And I did not give eye for eye, or tooth for tooth, or life for life. I let them take my life, so that you might be given life. And so in this passage, Jesus is saying, do for another what I have done for you. Let's pray. Our Father, throughout this whole sermon, we are pointed over and over again to the Savior and to Christ. And we see a Savior beside us in our worst pain, in our deepest hurt, when it feels completely unfair and unjust, who is able to sympathize with every pang of our heart, who does not patronize us, who does not pat us on the head and say, there, there, just suck it up and take it in, who says, I know what that's like. There is not a hurt in any heart in this room that you cannot empathize in the deepest possible way with. There is not an insult or an injury in this room that you cannot stand alongside and and say, I know. For you are the only one who is the true victim, and even we were the perpetrators against you. So we pray that you would call us to yourself as we look to this passage that cannot be applied in our own strength, but as we see our Savior do this for us, we pray that the Spirit himself would empower this to do this to others. And in doing so, we pray that we would not decimate our enemies, but win them through love and show them Christ. Do more than I've known to ask and pray. Heal and speak and minister to every heart bowed here. We pray this together in Jesus' name.